So I wonder what this might not be such a good one, but somebody like just brought it from. It's nice, yeah. From it's, the farming. It's quite. Um, mm. Pecan. Welcome to Encounter. I'm David Perry. No Ed this week, but producer Pepper and I are in the kitchen of Claudia Roden, multi-prize winning food writer. Among her many books, a new book of Middle Eastern food, Arabesque, the book of Jewish food, and so on. Wonderful recipes for sure, some of which is laid out for us to taste after this interview, but also oblique histories of the cultures that produced them. To describe Claudia as a food writer is like describing Marcel Proust as a guy with a good recipe for Madeleine biscuits. Her focus has been on the mosaic of recipes that come out of the Middle East, Jewish, Muslim, Christian. You've written very evocatively about your childhood memories of Zamalek in Cairo. Could you give the listeners a bit of a flavour of that? Yes, well... Zamalek really is a little island in the Nile, but in the middle of Cairo. And it was, it still is, a residential island. And um, I lived there in a block of flats with uh, my parents, two brothers and a nanny. And there was a cook, uh, a housekeeper. Now, Zamalek was... um, well, very beautiful, very green. From our balcony, we could see the felucas. The, those are the sailing boats going, gliding on the Nile. Many of my relatives lived in Zamalek. And uh, we had a very, to me, a very, very happy life. When we were little, we used to go to the park where we met a whole lot of children who were Greek, Armenian, uh, Muslim, Christian, uh, the whole mixture that was Egypt at the time. It was a very cosmopolitan country and multicultural. And then as we grew up a bit, uh, we, we started going with our parents to a club. And our life was very much the club. The club was, was like an English sporting club. And most of the people in that club were Jewish, but not all, but quite a lot of them. In fact, we never knew who was Jewish. Yes, so Egypt for me was a very happy place. All my memories are beautiful and happy. And I can't find one moment when somebody said something not very nice, either about being Jewish or about anything else. Um, But of course, I left before things turned sour. So I guess, Claudia, what ended this uh, childhood idyll was the Suez crisis. And... um your family moved to London, and that's where you've been ever since. And you started 
at St Martin's Art School, but then st- then moved into writing about food history. And at the heart of what you write about is the simple but profound notion, I think, uh, that every cuisine tells a story. Yes. I think on the whole, Jewish food, when I was writing it, uh, I felt that the story of Jewish food, or the story that Jewish food tells, is really the story of the diaspora. It's really the story of uprooted people, migrating people, and their vanished worlds. And those are, they, if you look at the dishes, in, even in my family alone, they are from mainly around the Mediterranean. And there's, um, by contrast, there's a a sort of romantic idea of um, terroir in, particularly the French talk about this, cooking associated with place. So almost by definition, the Jewish tradition is the opposite of that. Yes, yes, Jewish food, Jewish dishes, they are dishes without a terroir. They're just dishes with a remembered terroir, or a mythological, sometimes, terroir, uh, but a terroir, a nostalgic place where people felt their ancestors had come from. You, you talked about um, your own experience of um, Alexandria and finding quails and so on, and relating that to the biblical stories and some of the biblical stories of um, yes. people missing Egyptian food and so on. I found that very yes. interesting. Well, the, in the Bible, in the Exodus, the Jews who had fled from Egypt, who had escaped slavery, and when they were in the wilderness, they kept missing the foods, um, even the foods that they had when they were slaves. They often talk about the broad beans, the cucumbers, a whole lot of things that were associated with their life in Egypt that they missed and they remembered. And when they uh, were in the promised land, they did try to grow the same things. But also, when my Israeli publisher was looking at the book, she suddenly was so excited because I had a story of the quails migrating and falling on a beach in Alexandria. And they came every year. And somehow it just uh, told a story. It recalled biblical times. It was the story of the quails falling. And they were still falling in my time. Yeah, and that's remarkable. I mean, that's an extraordinary thing. Um, do, do, you, do you think that when there's been social synthesis and cultural vibrancy that is reflected in the cuisines that have emerged from that particular um, situation? You talked yeah. about the um, uh, yes. 11th century, there was a particularly yes. strong... Um, yes, I, I was talking about um, the cuisine 
of the Sephardim. I should really say that nowadays, the Jews from Arab lands are called Mizrahi Jews. And the Sephardi Jews are the ones who were originally from Spain and went and, and migrated and lived in various places. And uh, the food of uh, these, I was um, really comparing them to the food of the Ashkenazi Jews, which, although the Ashkenazi Jews are more numerous, and they also were in several countries, their food is uniform uh, and it's standard. Now, the Sephardim uh, are different in that the food is different in every country that they were, and it's also uh, different from town to town sometimes, and sometimes in the same city there are different Jews with different cuisines, but they do have enough in common. And what they have in common uh, sometimes are their grand dishes. And their grand dishes reflect uh, their golden ages. And one of their golden ages was in Baghdad and in the 10th century and until the 12th century, when Baghdad was one of the great centers of Jewish life. And the Jews there had had a very exalted position, and they even had a court. It was during the Caliphate, the Abbasid Caliphate, and they had their own court uh, with their own princes or whatever. And so they also developed an haute cuisine there. And that cuisine, many of its features came from Iran because, because Baghdad had adopted many of the cultures of Iran when Iran had become Muslim. After Baghdad, uh, another center of culture was Spain. So a lot of the grand dishes of the Jews originate in Spain, and now you find them all over the place. And an, a, a third time when foods came into their repertoire that were um, general uh, was the Ottoman Empire. So uh, foods that they adopted in the Ottoman Empire are very much the kind of foods that you find in Jewish cuisines. There are various um, theories about food restrictions, um, halal and kosher restrictions, um, and how and why they arose. Do, do you have yeah. any reflections on that? Yeah. According to tradition, the basis of the dietary laws was revealed by, by God to Moses on Mount Sinai as commandments. So they are really commandments. They are divine commandments. And they were interpreted, elaborated, and expanded on by rabbis. Uh, there are many, many, about uh, 10 ideas that people have put forward about this. Some of them have said it was healthy. Some was to do with ethical things. But actually, no, there is no reason. They're just uh, commands. Uh, you mentioned the um 
Jewish tradition in southern Spain. And then um, uh, lots of Jews moved, it, things deteriorated, and people, Jews moved into Christian Spain in the 13th century. Yeah. Um, what sort of influence did the Christian tradition, I think the monasteries had quite a big influence on developing cuisines at that time? Actually, uh, the Jews left southern Spain, El Andalus, which was Muslim, when the Almohads and the Almoravids, there were dynasties that wanted to convert them to Islam. And that's when they moved to the north. And uh, they moved and they actually brought dishes from the south, which actually the Arabs had brought to the south. They were Arab ways of cooking and they were Arab dishes and they brought them to the north, but they influenced the Christian world with these dishes which continue until today to be seen as Jewish. Uh, for instance, aubergines and I think artichokes and some ways of cooking. But actually, what's happened in the monasteries and now in the convents, there are a lot of convents that make pastries. I stayed in a convent when I was researching Spain uh, that made pastries, and they are Arab pastries, actually. And the nuns themselves tell you that. And they explain it by saying, when um, the Muslims were thrown out of Spain, or they were allowed to, to convert, and some of them converted. And at some stage, they, uh, after a few years of conversion, there had been an uprising of Muslim or ex-Muslims or Moriscos. Moriscos. What happened is that the Moriscos moved north where they were wanted because they knew how to grow vegetables, they knew how to plant, uh, which wasn't a Spanish uh, skill. But so it was at that time that uh, it was usual for women in Spain who weren't married to become nuns and to go into convents. There was a hierarchy of nuns in the convents. There were the wealthy ones who came with their servant. And their servant was a, usually a little Morisco maid because that was the kind of jobs they could get. And they came and made those little pastries. By the way, a lot of nuns were actually Jewish. They were converts to Christianity. So they also brought dishes to the convents. It wasn't the other way. I believe the Inquisition used to go around and um, if they could smell the pork cooking, they realised that yeah. Jews who'd converted were sincere, is that? Yeah, it was really for both Jews and Muslims. And uh, they were more interested in, in catching the Jews because the Jews who stayed were Jews with money. And if they arrested them, and they could take all their wealth. 
and but they also did that to Muslims sometimes. And one way was for the inquisitors to always go during mealtime and to make sure that they were eating as Christians. And so everybody, the Muslims, the Jews, and the old Christians, they all started putting bits of ham everywhere. They put ham in um, their salads, <laughs> in their soups, in their vegetables, in their fish. And so it is something that you find has lived on until today. There was also something else, and that was famously Torquemada, who was the big inquisitor. He used to go at the top of the hill on a Saturday to see the houses where there wasn't smoke coming out of the chimney. So he would know that they weren't uh, cooking. Well, that's uh, a good place to take a break. In the second part of our podcast, Claudio is going to pick out three dishes from the Jewish, Muslim and Christian traditions and just tell us a little bit about them. You're listening to Encounter, a podcast from the Wolf Institute. Don't forget to check out our other podcast series, An A to Z of Believing, From Atheism to Zealotry, with new episodes available every Sunday on your favourite podcast platform or at wolfpods.wordpress.com. Now back to the show. Welcome back. Can we start with the Muslim uh, Yes, well, it's a soup and it's called Harira and it's made at Ramadan. And actually, I was in Marrakesh at um, the time of Ramadan and I remember the smell of the soup in all the streets. And what it is, it's a very thick, rich soup because, of course, the people have fasted all day and they're terribly hungry and and this is something that is going to start. They'll eat many more things. They have, eat much more. They have a big banquet almost. But they start with this soup and it has meat, onions, chickpeas, large brown lentils, tomatoes, celery, and it's got lots of flavor. Saffron, ginger, cinnamon, and there is a velvety touch, they say, at the end, when I've made it. And it's really because they make it sort of a yeasty batter that they mix in. So it makes it nice and rich. And when they serve it, they put a bit of lemon. And what have you um, chosen for a Christian Well, dish. Christian dish is a fish kibbeh because the Christians in Lebanon and also in Syria, there are many different Christian communities, Eastern Orthodox, Catholic and Armenian, and all of them, in the past at least, were very strict about uh, observing Lent and not being able to eat meat. So they've got many, many vegetarian dishes and without meat. So kibbeh is a many different things, uh, which usually involves uh, bulgur and meat. And in this case, it's made as a pie, and the crust of the pie is bulgur, 
onion, lemon, and it's blended with fish. If you can imagine something, it makes a crust. And so you blend this, and in between the two crusts, you would make a filling which has fried onions and pine nuts, and you bake it. And um, they too also have nice flavoring, in this case, orange and lemon zest. Lovely. And finally, the Jewish, uh, the Jewish dish of the story of the yes. famous cave. Yes, I've chosen this one because there are many dishes that you would call Jewish, and uh, in particular, Sabbath dishes. And very often when I tell people, what is your best dish? When I was researching Jewish food, I would ask, what is the best Jewish dish? A lot of people would say, this is the most Jewish dish, but it's not the best. It's not all that good because you put all the food in one pot and you leave it all night to cook. Uh, it's not meant to be taste great, but I've chosen an orange cake, which is a Passover cake, and uh, it is actually just boiled oranges, boiled for an hour until they're very, very soft. You remove the pits and then you blend them with eggs and sugar. And then this is the base of the cake and you just bake it. So it's very easy and it's very tasty. It's become very fashionable now all over the world. <laughs> I just got a letter from Egypt asking me to, to do something for a magazine and saying, my father goes out every week, gets oranges to make your orange cake. So you see there are Muslims making the Jewish orange cake. It shows that there is still interchange. But I chose it because for me it's a very personal cake. It's personal because it was given to me by my sister-in-law's grandmother who left Egypt and she had come from Aleppo and only some Jews in Aleppo made that cake and I understood that it was originally a cake that was born in Spain with the Jews and uh, it was taken to Portugal when the Jews left uh, or were banished from Spain and went to Portugal. And when in Portugal, they were not allowed to leave, uh, but they left as Christians, merchants, traders, to go to Livorno, invited there by the, the Medici family. And while they were there, they were allowed to reconvert to Judaism. And when Livorno died as an international port, they moved to Aleppo. And they were the grandees of Aleppo. And then it came to Egypt. So it reflected the journey of dishes. Of course, these Jews who brought this particular cake, they would have been Maranos, because they would have converted in Portugal. And uh, so with dishes, you can really trace their path and, uh, and that is the diaspora. And sometimes the dishes take on a slightly new touch in a new place because 
they take something from there as well. Uh, do, do you think a dish can speak for a culture even when other traces of that culture have disappeared? Yes. I would like to quote a French writer, Edgar Morin. He is a Jew from Salonica. He explained the importance of food for his community in his book, Vidal et les siens, means Vidal and his people. Uh, it was long after the Jews left Salonica. A lot of Jews were killed by the Germans uh, during the war. And he wrote, gastronomy is the kernel of a culture. For Salonicans, pastelicos is the kernel of the kernel. For some, he said, pastelicos is all that is left of their culture. Pastelicos are little pies with meat inside. Very, uh, and powerful. you know that, <laughs> that grandmother, that also she gave me the recipe for pastelicos. Do you think on, on a more <laughs> practical level, um, just eating together convivially is a way of uh, almost a form of diplomacy. It can bring people together and it can, uh, by getting interested in someone else's calendary culture, you can understand uh, the way they think about things. Well, I think just for anybody, when you eat, there is something, a kind of bonding of a shared meal. There is something about eating together which opens us up to sharing what it is to be human. That was Claudia Roden speaking from her London kitchen, and it marks the end of this first series of Encounter from the Wolf Institute. From Islamophobia to anti-Semitism, from music to food, it's been our privilege to bring you the faith-based conversations that we think matter. So if you have been, thank you for listening, and please join us in the spring for a new series.